episode of the Discomfort Zone podcast. The idea to cross the ape man with the Anunnaki. Slaves work animals created for one person to obey the gods. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Discomfort Zone podcast. Uh, I hope my timing was okay there. I'm not sure why, but I actually couldn't hear the song (laughs) as it was playing. So just to be sure, as is our customary uh, tradition, please let me know in the chat if there are any audio problems, if you can't hear me at all, or if you can hear me loud and clear. That's what we want. Okay, so as usual, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me for another episode of the Discomfort Zone podcast. Crimson Clad, Patient Zero, Rondon, it's a pleasure to have you here as always. Um, And this week, well, we've got an episode that's uh, as usual jam-packed and we'll see how much we manage to plow through. I guess when I'm, I didn't hear this song, but knowing that it is, we should probably change the... uh, the song to something more fitting to these uh, episodes, the new series. So maybe I'll write something new uh, for now. Um, oh, is there a problem, Rondon? I'll continue as long as there isn't, as this is being recorded as well. But uh, let me know in chat if you can't hear me or anything. Um, ah, the chat, okay. So this week, okay, before we actually get into the episode itself, I wanted to just mention very, very quickly a little bit of shameless self-plugging, but, uh, you know, this is my podcast after all. No, in the past on the podcast, I've mentioned a few times the game of Go and the huge influence that uh, it has had on me. And I really do believe that this game, uh, it, it, it somehow somehow bothers me to call it a game, but that this, you know, uh, pastime has a the potential to be a very powerful tool. This is in my life, obviously, personally, but it really has allowed me to understand uh, some of these concepts and experience them and also allowed me to work on myself and by myself. And because of that, Uh, I'll just take a few minutes from the beginning before we start to mention that I'm going to be starting a new series on uh, Hive. Um, For those who want the details, you can check out my page uh, explaining a little bit about the game and how to play and some basic concepts. And then I'm going to be going on to streaming my games so that if you would like to learn and watch, um, you can join there. So just a little bit if you are curious about the game, interested, heard me mentioning it before but didn't know where to start, uh, now you have another option. So that's that. And on with the show. This week's episode is a direct continuation from last week, but um, someone actually mentioned that it was possible that, uh, I, I should say, the numbers from Sacred Geometry that we dealt with last week, one through four, are not the only numbers, obviously, in the system, and there's a lot more information um, with the other numbers, but I felt personally that these first four we were the most important concepts and the most basic concepts to start building on. And because of this, I felt it was uh, okay to sort of start with that and we'll leave it there for now. Later on, I believe we will return for some more numbers, but for now, we're actually going to stick with those four. 
And so because of that, we're going to start with the number four that we ended on last week. Oh, Alien Honey, wonderful to have you. Thank you very much for joining. Um, are you guys hearing me okay? Is there a problem with the audio? Oh, I hope not. Um, everything seems to be okay, so I will continue. Please let me know in chat, any one of you, if uh, if there's a problem. Ah, Alien Honey, you seem to have heard me, so that's both in one. Excellent. So, the number four. As I mentioned last week, and I'll repeat once again, these numbers are not merely uh, symbols. They're not merely um, anything less than an idea, a perspective, a way of viewing the world. Um, and indeed, as a very quick and small example in the, not Vedic tradition, but I think it's the Hindu traditions in general in India, there are two different sort of perspectives. And one is to see everything as a part of unity, a part of a whole. Everything is connected, everything is one. Um, and not seeing any differentiation or recognizing that any differentiation we see is our mind categorizing and splitting it up in order to understand. And on the opposite dimension, we have another perspective whereby you view the world as a separation, a separation from the source, a separation from God. But all of these things are basically a duality that we can come to recognize and work with and eventually surpass in a certain way. So these two forms, these two ways of looking at life are both equally correct and possibly equally important. However, it might be said that for some one will be more fitting than the other. But nevertheless, they don't cancel each other out. They're simply different ways of interpreting it. And so when we talk about these numbers, when we think about unity and we think about binary, if the question arises, which is a more true aspect of the universe, which would uh, allow us to view the truth more easily, the answer is they are both uh, equally you know, accurate and inaccurate in a way. Um, they, they, the, the, each perspective allows us to see a different part of the universe, to, to acknowledge a different part of the universe. So it's very important to remember that when I'm talking about all these things, that each of these ideas um, is not absolute universal. And if it seems that these other ideas are contradicting, that's because they can coexist at the same time, even if they disagree on the, uh, on the worldview. And we'll see a little bit more how that fits as we move forward. But for now, let's talk about the number four. I mentioned last week the wave and the four points on a wave being the highest point and the lowest point and the two points of equi uh, equilibrium in between. And those four points can be sort of um, placed on lots of different scenarios in order to read the situation. They could be terms of uh, time that has passed. Uh, you can look at the day and you can look at the uh, peak of the afternoon as uh, the high point and the middle of the night, as it were, as the low point. And then, you know, around 6 a.m. morning and evening, as it were, sunrise and sunset as the two points of equilibrium. You can stretch it out to be instead of 24 hours a year. And then that's, as we said, the travel of the, the sun through the sky from the high point in the summer solstice to the low point in the winter solstice 
crossing through the two uh, equinoxes in the middle. And again, we can uh, we can use it not just for measuring time, but also in terms of progress. And we can look at some kind of objective that we want to achieve. And as we start out, we usually start, you know, improving towards a high point where there's a crossover between how much we can learn quickly because we're only starting versus how deep we can get into a subject. So whenever we start learning something from scratch, we're usually accumulating much more information much more quickly. Or if we even try to do something, you know, physically a challenge, the beginning period, the beginner's mindset, as it were, is the period with the most learning. And then it crosses that threshold and you start to improve less and less. And if you're starting a new uh, um, kind of skill that you're learning, often you can see this as a dip in motivation as well, where you sort of felt you were really progressing, you felt you were moving forward, and then suddenly there's a slight uh, stop and you start decelerating the speed with which you are advancing. And this will continue until you reach that low point. And if you cross that, you will enter once again that point where you feel you're improving uh, a lot. And these, you know, ebbs and flows, as it were, appear in all of our life. And I think we all have experienced them in various different scenarios. So again, this concept is not just one single point, but it can be applied to many, many different situations and scenarios. And that's really, I think, the key point, for me at least, in all these things. If something is only relevant or valid for a very, very narrow set of circumstances, it has less, uh, it can help me less in my general life. Whereas the more basic an idea is, the idea of opposites, the idea of the binary viewpoint, the more applicable it is to a wider variety of experiences in life and the more I can use that viewpoint. So that's just a, another general overview of what we're talking about here with the sacred geometry numbers in general and with a lot of these concepts that come from there. So the number four is another has another representation not just the, the wave that we were talking about and it's probably one of the more famous concepts I think that people have heard about certainly before uh, the New Age Revolution, which is the four elements. Now, I should point out before we go on that when I say uh, the four elements, I'm referring to the Greek uh, original terminology and all of the other practices that have sort of come uh, from there. But the Chinese, for example, have five elements and it's a very different system. They have wood and they have metal and they don't have uh, wind, if I'm not mistaken. So again, these are multiple systems that we can see, but we're going to be talking about the four elements. Ah, uh, Soundways Photon is asking if uh, what's the fifth element. I assume you mean it as a joke, but it's interesting. I didn't know that the fifth element, which, which does exist, um, is actually the or origin of our uh, word quintessential, which I only years later discovered. Quint being the uh, origin of five, um, and uh, essential being the you know the missing part, as it were. And so, when it's quintessential, something is sort of the absolutely important source. But uh, <laughs> yes, well, well, we'll deal with the names afterwards and whether it's radiation or love. Some would say it's radiating love, but uh, we'll get to that. Let's start with the first four and we'll move on from there. 
Um, so for those who don't know or don't remember, the four elements, generally speaking, are earth, water, uh, wind and fire in no particular order. And so each of these elements, I think when I first heard about this, it was from the Greek mythologies and a few philosophers who mentioned this. And, you know, over the ages, there was always this philosopher who would say, fire is the base element of all others. And in other words, say water is the base element of all others. But my understanding back then was literally of sort of fire and water. So the, the force of water in the world, all of the oceans, all of the rivers, all of the molecules that we recognize as H2O uh, are in this category of water. And then the same with fire and air. But I have yet come to realize that this is a too simplistic a uh, viewpoint to have on the subject. And when we talk about water, we're not talking about the physical, as it were, um, element in a chemical sense. We're actually talking about the concept. So when the Greeks or whoever were the first decided on the word water, they meant water as a metaphor representing this, shall we say, force in the universe. And this is obviously applicable to all of the four elements. When we say fire, we mean that which is fiery, as opposed to, you know, the burning off of uh, chemical whatever. So the reason I decided to start with the four elements is because it's another very interesting viewpoint and it relates specifically to the human body. And this is going to be a very big part of this week's episode. Now, the reason it's such a big part... Oh, hang on, before we continue. Yes, patient zero, uh, full marks as usual uh, with the correct answer. All of the rest of you, please settle down and take this a little more, more seriously. Thank you. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> but in case you don't have ether, then meth will definitely substitute. So, this episode, I wanted to focus a little bit on the human body. And there was a sentence that I came across years ago which said, the human body is the yardstick of the universe. Now, this sentence is, is quite a mouthload, as it were. And I think it took a while for me to sort of understand what it was really about. When we talk about, well, just first, let's uh, explain it in case we don't quite understand the literary interpretation. The human body itself can be used as a quote-unquote measurement, not physically only, but you know, generally and metaphorically, for the rest of the universe. If uh, maybe instead of measurement, we could say a point of reference, um, a point of ref, ref uh, a point of reference from which we can measure uh, things in the universe. Now, this sentence, to my personal ears, coming from a Judeo-Christian, you know, Jewish background. Uh, which which uh, I have somewhat rejected, is a tremendously anthropocentric view. Uh, anthropocentric means seeing the human as the center of the universe, in this case, quite literally. And so the theory that the sun revolves around the earth obviously came from this perception that the earth is the center of our solar system. And within that, uh, once again, the human is the center or at the top of the food chain, the center of the ecosystem. Uh, you know, we've been charged with taking care of the animals and naming them. It's clear that we see that the human is the most important creation that nature has to offer. 
And this view in my mind is very, very skewed. Uh, obviously, there was a lot going on before humans came. Probably, uh, it would be hard to deny that there will be a lot going on after humans are no longer. And it's very hard in this postmodernistic world to really seriously consider that humans are the be-all, you know, and end-all of all creation. Having said that, the fact that the human body can be a yardstick for the universe is not necessarily tied in with the with an anthropocentric um, perception of the universe. And I'll try and explain what I mean by that. If, uh, if any of these concepts or I'm using all of my usual language, and I know that some of my listeners may not be, um, English might not be your first language or for whatever reason. So if I'm going through anything in chat that you would like me to pause, please let me know. Words are important to, uh, to me at least. Um, so this perception, I don't think comes from an anthropocentric, uh, view of the world because it is a human perspective. And this is a sort of trick that we can use to get out of it. But basically what I'm saying is, yes, the universe is not anthropocentric, but we most definitely are. And in my perception of the universe, I cannot perceive it the same way a cat or a goldfish sees it. Um, I am, you know, forced or burdened or even have chosen the human perspective for this lifetime and to leave it would be to stop being who I am. So any theory, any language, any thought, any perception that we will have with our, within our human bodies will necessarily be anthropocentric. And that's a slightly uh, blanket statement that can be applied to almost all anthropocentric uh, theories. But it's important to remember that although I am anthropocentric, I experience the world from a human perspective, I can still be aware that that perspective is only one of many, even if I can't tap into and actually experience what those others would be. So having said all that, Okay, I can see chat is running, but I think there's nothing too crucial. If there's something that you'd like me to read, then please put it in uh, bold letters, uh, in caps. Sorry, not bold, in caps, and then I'll be able to find it more quickly. Um, so, when we think of this sentence, the human body is a yardstick for the universe, in my perception, and this is obviously after studying the subject and learning a lot more about it, it seems to be that there are a lot of coincidences, shall we say, within the human body. Uh, this can be more easily or more rationally understood when it comes to uh, spaces of the body, uh, proportions of the body, of the face. We have a lot of these uh, scientifically measured um, proportions that coincide with different proportions in the universe. And I'm not going to get into any of that right now because it's not what we're about. But if you're interested, please uh, uh, go and research, you know, different measurements of the human body that coincide with measurements of the universe. <laughs> yeah, I, I, easily seen. I'll read everything you say. Excellent. Um, okay. Hang on. Ah, okay, that's not for me. So, what I wanted to talk about today was the four elements and the way the four elements are represented in the body, as it were, 
is what we would like to call four different dimensions. And I use that again as the term that we have established, which are different perspectives, different levels of existence, different, you know, realms, as it were. And the four realms that correspond to the four elements are our physical, emotional, mental and spiritual uh, beings, shall we say. And so just to correlate them very quickly, the physical um, is said to be represented by the earth element, the emotional by the water, uh, mental by air and spiritual by fire. Now, again, this is uh, what we saw before, the meaning of those physical elements. It's not that emotions are water. It's not that they travel as a liquid through the body, although there's a case to be made that they do, but rather that the behavior of emotions is tremendously water-like, uh, fluid, changing. You know, we, we can see that metaphors befitting it in the same way that earth a very stable, you know, hard uh, element can be likened to our physical body. And again, mental and spiritual, etc. So these four elements, these four realms of existence make up uh, our existence here. And as we've said before, and we'll be, uh, we'll be coming back to it, um, it's not the only representation of the human body. It's not the only four dimensions that we can categorize. And we're actually going to be introducing another system later on in the episode. I hope if we have time, we might just mention it. But the four elements for me were very, very interesting. And I've, I've studied um, the subject a lot and had a lot of time to think about it. And one of the biggest conclusions I think um, that I've had was regarding teaching children and I feel that generally speaking in my experience and uh, I believe in others as well as children we don't often um, get taught to think about our emotions and to deal and perceive our emotions in a in an understanding way I think that as a child I never really spoke to people you know to the adults about their emotions, about how they were feeling and what this means, etc. It seems to be a subject that's completely uh, swept under the rug, as it were. You know how you're supposed to behave, you're told what you're supposed to do, but when it comes to understanding why you do the things you do or why you feel the way you do, there's very little that's talked about. I believe today is, is better and I think that it, it's being done more. But for me, when I heard about this categorization into the four elements of the human experience, it really did change a lot of my perception. Because suddenly, with these, uh, obviously, we think in those terms before, we think I have a physical body that's different from my emotions, that's different from my thoughts, that's different from my, let's say, belief. And we can see that these are different parts of my being, of my personality, whatever. But the relationship between them and the way that they interact is something that I feel is very lacking in our attention today, in our understanding. And this is a little bit what I wanted to talk about. When I was sort of discovering this realm and studying it a bit more, it became apparent that 
this uh, designation, this di uh, division into the four parts was completely uh, false, as it were, was, was forced upon. And that's because whenever I experience something, I experience it completely. So if I'm, uh, let's say if I'm frightened, then I have physical symptoms. My body changes, my metabolism changes, all of these systems kick in and start uh, doing different things, raising your heart uh, beat your pre um, heart, sorry, your blood pressure, raise your heartbeat, your uh, breathing becomes sort of shallower and quicker. These are physical responses to an emotion, as it were. And obviously, it's the same with our thoughts. Uh, when we are frightened, we start thinking about what we're frightened about. And if we talk to someone, we'll talk to them about those fears. So it's very hard, or it was very difficult for me to understand how we could separate those into the different realms. And yet, in our language, because of the way it's structured, we very rarely make that connection. So we'll see someone who's, you know, sulking, which usually means in a bent-over posture, looking down at the floor, you know, not making eye contact, and we'll infer from their physical behavior, their emotional state, and we'll go and talk to them. But still, when we say, I'm feeling sad, we really think about it only in terms of the emotion. And for instance, we can even have uh, times where there is a, uh, a disconnect between those two, where we think, I am unhappy and I don't know why. So there's a disconnect between my mental and emotional. My feelings are that I'm unhappy, but my mental faculty cannot understand or doesn't know why. And so it's this odd paradox as we come to time and time again of how do we marry these two ideas where on the one hand we have these very easily distinguishable uh, categories. When I say emotion, I believe nobody in that's listening to this doesn't know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about thoughts. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, physical experiences. I'm talking about those things that we feel. We all know what that is. Um, and yet, when we look at our personal experience, we can't possibly separate the two. Uh, in terms of how we are experiencing it. If we just look closely enough, we'll see that any one of these dimensions is affecting and being affected by all three others. And this, I think, for me, is sort of part of the big picture that we're trying to see here. What, I'm, what I felt when I understood this a bit more was that, first of all, this is another, another example of these two paradoxes, these opposing parts, thoughts and emotions, uh, rationality and irrationality, as it were, being at odds with each other. And yet clearly that perception of them being at odds is only our perception and it can't actually be the reality because in reality we see them as one and the same, as part of this unified experience. So, that, I think, is the true power of viewing our experience in the human body in that way. Whenever, and this is something that I sort of try and do now as well, whenever I have an emotion that has come over me, I usually deal with that emotion mentally. And so a very important part in, in my experience, and I think in all, of changing 
our emotional reactions is to bring our awareness to it. And when I say awareness, I'm usually talking about the mental uh, faculty, the mental part of ourselves. So if I'm, if I realize that whenever somebody mentions, oh gosh, I'm going to try and think of a very stupid example just for us to understand. But let's say, let's say I was insecure about being short. Whenever someone mentions something about being short or people making a joke about it, I immediately get angry. And if I don't pay attention to that, I can continue always being angry about it and feeling those same emotions. And eventually it'll probably lead to, uh, well, bad things, let's just say. But if I want to change that reaction, the first thing that I have to do is become aware and not only do I have to become aware that it's something that I do, but I have to be eventually become aware as it is happening, become aware in the moment. And as soon as I do that, there's this very interesting thing that happens that I can suddenly bring a rational awareness to an irrational emotion that I'm having. And I can say, okay, I can feel that I'm angry or upset or insecure, um, but that voice that can say that I'm feeling it is separate from that feeling. I hope that wasn't too all over the place. Uh, you follow what I'm trying to say. But <laughs> basically, whenever we would like to address our emotional side in a rational way, we do it through our mental faculty. Now, this is obviously applicable to any one of the four elements and each has its own sort of realm. So in order for us to, I'll say the word work, and I think that's something that's maybe worth defining very quickly. Um, in alchemy, there is a term which is called the good work. And that means the work that one does in his life, or her life, sorry, basically to better themselves to become a balanced individual um, in every way that we can conceive of as being the ultimate health. So having all of the diversity that we have, but all of it being kept in balance and all of it sort of supporting each other as opposed to taking away from each other. So just a quick example so that we understand. For me personally, as some of you will probably know, I have a strong um, dependency and leaning towards my mental faculty. I value intelligence very, very highly. I value my own intelligence very, very highly. For example, if I were, God forbid, to suffer some kind of injury or illness that would diminish my uh, intellect, that would be one of the worst things that I could imagine. And I'm purposefully saying that because I recognize that to be an imbalance. As it were, it would sort of uh, disappoint me less, as it were, to be physically injured than to be, you know, intellectually, uh, intelligently injured, as it were. So that's a small example of my personal life. I'm, I recognize that I had this predisposition towards thinking, this uh, imbalance where I valued rationality far more than irrationality always. And from the moment I sort of saw that and understood it, I started working and I'm still working on trying to balance that, on trying to um, elevate 
my emotional, my intuitive, shall we say, side, and to try and bring the importance of intelligence in my uh, life uh, to the same level as the importance of my physical state and the importance of my emotional state. So that's a quick example of what I mean by balancing. We are all out of balance to a certain degree. Um, any kind of flaw that we have is an imbalance of either a deficit or a, a too much. And so when I say this term, the good work, basically, as, as simply as I can put it, that's what I mean. For all of us, for every individual, to try and bring the sides of themselves back into balance as much as possible. Um, yeah, I think that's clear enough. Let me know if you have any questions as usual. So, when I mention working, uh, that's usually what I mean. And perhaps I'll try and make sure to say the good work, doing the good work, uh, to be clear about it. But in my perception, once again, um, and this I think is quite clear in this subject, these subjects that we're talking about, and as far as I'm concerned, are specifically about this. This is all an attempt to improve ourselves, to become the best versions of ourselves that we can, to do what we are here to do, to fulfill our potential, as much as we might hate that word. Um, and part of that, in my mind, is recognizing ourselves, being aware of ourselves, being aware of our influence on our environment, being aware of how others perceive us. And with all of that awareness, recognizing the parts in ourselves that we need to change, um, the parts in ourselves that we need to lessen, and the parts that we need to increase. And for that specifically, recognizing the four element system, recognizing the four parts of our being allows us to gain more understanding of these different parts of ourselves. So once again, a tiny example just to uh, be absolutely crystal clear. Oh, let me see. There's a question actually. Are you talking about Gurdjieff's great work? Actually, well, again, not specifically. When I say great work, good work, um, I'm talking about all of the different uh, perceptions that might be had, which include improving human beings. So that's uh, a lot of different, different things. I, I don't think I know what uh, Gurdjieff specifically means by great work. I've read a few of his books, but I can't remember that term uh, specifically. Let me know. Da -da -da -da. Yeah, let me know what you mean by that, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you if that's what I mean. <laughs> but I don't remember that term for anything specific, although Gurdjieff talks about it a lot. Gurdjieff's, if I remember his metaphor uh, or simile, was it's like a person riding a carriage, and the driver is the mental, the carriage is the physical, and the reins are the emotional if I'm not mistaken. And then uh, the point is for the rational to be controlling and bring it under um, its sort of, yeah, control and awareness, I believe. Um, so he does talk about this and he talks about the four elements and the four parts of the human body. Okay, yeah, let me know later. I will uh, let all of you know in next week's episode, I hope, if I remember. But Nevertheless, the good work is not just in alchemy. When I speak about it, any spiritual teaching, any 
um, even, you know, physical improvement, uh, working out as long as it's something that's beneficial as opposed to detrimental. So obviously not bodybuilders who are injecting themselves with, you know, different chemicals, but people who are trying to lead a healthy lifestyle physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, which is a big one, obviously. That's what I mean when I talk about the good work. And that's how I believe that, that part of this can be uh, applied. Um, okay, let's see, 11.36, but 10.36 UTC. Wonderful. So I think what we're going to do... <laughs> well done, Patient Zero, absolutely. There's a, I mean, I'll be honest, not even just bodybuilders. This is something that I just want to mention very quickly when we think of health Usually, when if I say health, people will think physical health. And if I say, you know, all kinds of health, we might include mental health. And mental health, again, is something rather specific. And we talk about it from the mental side of things, you know, the thought processes. But there is both emotional health and also uh, spiritual health. And again, maybe the word instead of health would better be balance. But if we have a lacking, a deficiency in our spiritual part, in that part of ourselves that we feel gives us purpose, connects us to something larger than ourselves, allows us to find meaning in the universe and in ourselves. Um, if we have a deficiency there, that can lead to uh, an unhealthy situation as well. And I, I personally believe we see a lot of people in today's society, obviously following the mandate of society and the uh, what society deems as important. But nevertheless, these people are left without a purpose, uh, feeling that life is meaningless, feeling that they are unimportant in their in their doings here that whether they were here or not whether they exist or not is actually doesn't matter which i think is is a, is a terrible feeling to have i think at the very least since we're all going to die anyway more important than a healthy body would be a, a healthy spiritual outlook since people who are dying can take comfort in spirituality but people who are alive and well without spirituality really do often seem to be suffering and again i use the word spirit and spirituality very very loosely uh, this is not even concerned with a you know saying the word god or seeing the cosmos as a unified not at all if someone sees their lives and their work here as valuable, as meaningful, as something that will have an impact on the world, as something that ties them into something which is larger than themselves, that for me is a part of the spiritual aspect. And obviously, we see much more of that when it comes to religion, spirituality, these different areas. But nevertheless, it can definitely be there for, let us call it, people who are uneducated. So just if someone doesn't have a specific practice, doesn't mean that they can't find uh, meaning and purpose in their lives. So that's just to clear it up. Um, I have to say that's a very disturbing gift, uh, patient zero. <laughs> but nonetheless, so uh, we've discussed the four elements and... We're going to start the next subject and we're going to, you know, end it halfway as it is now. Um, but I think it's it's worth at least opening the subject. So the next system that I wanted to introduce 
again, is a very, very famous system, perhaps not as famous as the four elements before, since it wasn't part of the Western tradition. Well, at least not for many years, but I am talking about the system of seven, the number seven. And in this, the main focus of our system is going to be the chakras. So if any of you have heard of the chakras and have any kind of uh, perception, um, you know, what level or whatever, please feel free to uh, post in chat and let me know so that I know whereabouts we're talking about. Uh, whereabouts we're talking with this situation. Sorry. I will start with a little introduction in case there is anybody who has no idea what I'm talking about. It's always good to start at the beginning. So the word chakra is a word from Sanskrit, which means wheel. And I think the translation to wheel, which is the absolute common translation from everyone, might be a little misleading for us. I'm not sure about this, so don't uh, check it if you want. But I believe that in this Sanskrit, there is a tendency to the word that implies motion. And so for us, you know, if we say spinning wheel, that's a noun, but the noun encapsulates motion in it. Whereas if we say wheel, um, it could very well be sort of a static circle. So the word chakra, which is translated as wheel, would possibly be better thought of as a vortex. And this is obviously what was meant when they chose the word chakra. It's simply the three-dimensional representation, the vortex, of a two-dimensional spiral or a circle, a wheel, as it were. And so what is the chakra system and what does it have to do with us? Well, it's basically another perception of the human body. And I mentioned exactly, thank you, patient zero. And I mentioned at the start that this was the number seven because we're going to be talking about the seven chakras. But it's worth mentioning right off the bat that there is another system of chakras which is possibly less famous, um, but which Drumvelo Malkizedek talks about at length in his book, and it's very much worth mentioning, which is a system of 12 uh, chakras, uh, technically 13, as it were, 12 or 13, depending on how you count. So just because we say chakras doesn't necessarily mean the same seven, um, but we are talking now about the seven chakra system in the human body. Now, as I was preparing this episode and, uh, you know, deciding what I was going to talk about, I think this is a, one of those very, very difficult subjects. And this is why I started it just 20 minutes before the end, because honestly, uh, a whole hour about the chakra system still wouldn't be nearly enough even to really start grasping all of the different facets and aspects of it. It's a tremendously complex, dense um, and a huge amount of material uh, inside this system. And because of that, we're going to be very, very focused and we're going to learn to use this uh, system a little bit. Um, you know what? For those in chat, if I'm already here, I'm going to very quickly post the, a list of the name of the chakras and the different um, aspects that are related. And we'll talk about it a little bit here and we'll carry on next week with what we have left. And so the different aspects that we talk about are the correlated planet, the planet that is uh, designated with that chakra, the uh, type of body 
which is the term that's used in New Age, which is, uh, you know, we have the physical body, they call it, you know, the uh, etheric bodies, astral bodies, etc., etc. So these different kinds of bodies um, and the biological organ that goes along with it, um, the nerve ganglion, the nerve centers, and the uh, glands, the endocrine system, um, as it relates to the seven chakras. So I've just posted that on chat. You should be able to see it, hopefully. Now, oh, I can see already it's not very well seen on the video. I apologize for you watching. You can check all of this up on the internet if you're interested in anything, but I just wanted to have the words up there. So the seven, the seven chakras, for those who don't know, um, starting at the bottom, one of the uh, sort of terms that we use are the root chakra. And this is uh, very near the perineum. This is right at the lowest point of the body, not including the legs, as the legs obviously are sort of limbs that are attached when it comes to the central nervous system, the spine, um, and of course the uh, endocrine system, our whole torso, including the head, is sort of considered the, 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 the part that that relates to. So the lowest point of our torso. After that, we have uh, the sacral chakra, which is close to the reproductive organs. Then the solar plexus, which is actually the same name uh, as we have in uh, anatomy in the West. And uh, for those who don't know, it's sort of slightly between your belly button and your, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, oh my gosh, the point between your lungs. I can't remember the term. I can only think of it in Hebrew, sorry. But the point right below sort of where your heart is, as it were. So underneath that is the, uh, the um, sorry, the solar plexus. Ah, patient zero. Thank you so, so much. So patient zero gratefully has uploaded ah, a picture which cannot be seen on the video. So I apologize. But with that information, you can then correlate it with what I've written for the extra information. Solar plexus, yeah. sternum. Thank you, patient zero. God, I completely lost my mind. Yes, sternum, um, which is called, sorry, the, the sternum is the heart chakra. Um, right next to the heart, although not to the left as the heart is, but right in the center. And again, we'll talk about the positioning in a moment because that's also a little confusing. Then we have the throat chakra, which funnily enough is in the throat. Uh, then the most famous chakra, probably the third eye, which is you know around the eyebrows between the two eyes that we can see. And then the last one is the... Uh, highest point in our body, the crown of our head, which is called the crown chakra. Uh, fittingly, excuse me. Sorry, my voice keeps breaking at certain points. Okay, so those are the seven chakras. And I'd suggest if you've never heard about it at all, at some point to go and have a look at them just to get a perception. It really helps um, to sort of start seeing this a bit more. But for us, we're not going to focus on any of the details right now, even though I put them up. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. What I would like to focus on is this positioning, as this is what we've talked about. So according to the Hindu traditions where we get this chakra system from, the chakras are vortexes of energy. Um, as vortexes are, they have an in and out 
position. And in fact, there are two of these vortexes for each vorticei. I can't remember the plural, but two of these for each uh, chakra. And it's uh, in motion, it's spinning. So we always draw them as a sort of centered circle, but it would be possibly more uh, accurate to think of it as a, a radiating sphere, as it were. Sorry. So these seven, oh, I apologize for that. These seven chakras um, play an important part in our body in that they relate once again to the other parts. And so I purposefully mentioned these two, the nerve ganglion and the endocrine system, because first of all, whenever the first time that I was learning about this, it really did surprise me to find that there were these very specific organs with very specific functions and all seem to be relating to what we hear about from the chakras and the same with the nerve ganglions. So regardless of the chakras, there seems to be an, uh, a density of energy, uh, a focus of energy in these points in the human body, according to Western medical science. So when we think of the chakras and their positioning, we shouldn't think of them exactly as organs, but more as this sort of ethereal cloud of moving energy at different speeds and not to pinpoint it uh, quite so specifically. And in fact, a few people, Drumvelo actually had a, uh, an experiment that he did where they were trying to measure the exact positioning of the chakras and they had uh, a few uh, um, sort of readings that were slightly different from what was believed or said to be until then. And again, as with all of these things, each person, each individual, each body is going to be slightly different and unique in this sense, and the chakras are not any different from that. So whenever you have a uh, diagram of the human body, um, it's going to be a generalization, and you will have people that um, are different in one way or another. So it's important to remember all of this whenever we're talking about this isn't the exact precise uh, location of a small circular disk, okay? Now, another thing that's very interesting, which is related to the chakras, is their colors. And when I first heard about the chakras, I thought that the colors were a nice addition. I thought, you know, it's curious how did they uh, chose this way. But in fact, uh, later I uh, read, learnt that the colors were increasing in frequency on the electromagnetic spectrum. So once again, we've mentioned the electromagnetic spectrum of light uh, in the past. And if we see the colors on patient zero's lovely picture, and for those listening, they go, the root chakra is red, and then orange, yellow, green, blue, purple, sort of purplish. Um, and then uh, it's actually ultraviolet, what we call. So infrared going all the way up to ultraviolet. And for those who are astute, you'll probably notice that those are the same colors of the rainbow. Um, give or take. Interesting fact that different countries have different numbers of colors in the rainbow. It's obviously a subjective choice to decide to draw the line between an, uh, a seamless um, array of colors, a seamless spectrum 
of uh, colors. But nevertheless, when we look at the colors of the rainbow, we can see each of those seven colors um, if we so choose. So this number seven um, comes back time and time again. And we can see it with the endocrine system. We can see it with the seven colors. Um, and we can also see it in a few other areas. And I'm just going to make this final point because I can see we're running out of time. And we're going to end on this. We're going to continue next week because I realize we're in the beginning, but uh, in the middle. But uh, we'll, we'll carry on, I promise. So one of the more curious facts about the chakra system when I was learning about it was their relationship to what we call the wandering planets. And so we spoke about the number seven system and another system that has seven in it is what's known as the wandering planets. These were the planets that were known about in olden times. And going through them now, I'll mention them just so that we're all on the same page. And in no particular order, they are the Sun, the Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and uh, Saturn. Those are the seven planets, and they are always spoken of as the planets that most affect Earth and what's going on over here. So once again, um, what we mentioned in the beginning of the episode, the human body is a yardstick for the universe we see that representation once again here with the seven chakra system uh, correlating to the seven wandering planets. Yes, Venus. Did I mention Venus? Goodness me, I'm sorry. Yes. Once again, Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, of course, Mars, uh, Jupiter, and Saturn. Thank you, Rondon. I apologize. The, the first seven, uh, sorry, the first five planets and the sun and the moon. That's a, an easier way to remember it. Yes, the other three planets, um, Uranus and uh, I can't remember the other two. What are the other two? Anyway, post it on chat. But the other three planets were discovered much later. And although, um, as, as is spoken about in astrology, they have their own role to play, um, we're not going to be talking about them now because we're starting at the beginning. And the system of seven uh, relates to those seven planets. Again, in the same way that the chakra system has another system of 12. Um, but we're going to be talking about the seven for starters. And so each of these planets has, uh, if we were talking about the elements, a certain energy a type of energy that's correlated to it. And indeed, each of these seven planets is represented by one of the chakras. And I'll just mention the list very quickly. I hate lists and I think that, you know, it's a very bad way to process information. I think understanding is much better than memorizing different parts. But nonetheless, having this information, at least being exposed to it a little bit, I think can be useful in the future as we delve into this deeper and understand more and more. So I'm just going to go through it very quickly. Starting at the bottom first chakra, the order of the planets, as I've indeed uh, written, is the Moon, and then Venus, Mars, the Sun, Mercury, Jupiter, and Saturn. Now, before we continue, it is very important to say that that 
order of the planets which I mentioned, the correlation between the planets and the chakras is not the only order that exists. And uh, in fact, there are many different um, mappings and correlations that people have done to these systems to find meaning in it. And I don't believe for a second that what I've just mentioned is the only true one. However, um, this is the system that I feel most related to and this is the system that I want to talk about because it's the one that I've studied. So again, this isn't the only answer, but this is what we're going to be focusing on here. So let's see, what have we got? 1056. Okay. Um, I think we might actually take a pause here. Oh yes, Pluto. Thank you, Bishop Zero. Pluto and Eris? No. Uh, no. Um, there's another one. Ah. Oh. Uranus, Pluto. Gosh, it's completely escaped my mind. I do apologize. I uh, I didn't look up the other three because we don't talk about them, but I'll have to do it another time before next week's episode. Although you can all Google it, let's be honest. Um, my point here is not to memorize the names of things. It's to talk about, you know, the way of life and uh, ideas. Anyway, so, okay, we've got exactly three minutes left so i think we're going to end on that if there are any uh questions um please let me know neptune thank you alien honey god i forgot completely neptune indeed uh nibiru absolutely that's the 13th interesting that we have 12 uh chakras and a 13th we have 12 planets and a 13th and well, the 13th, I'll just tell you now, this will be a, a sneak peek for next week. Um, another system of seven that you might recognize is the musical scale. So when I say musical scale, we usually think of do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. But that is actually a pentatonic scale. That's obviously the one that's uh, most famous that we all use, the major, etc. But there is another scale called a chromatic scale. And the chromatic scale includes all of the semitones between those full tones. So it's if we're going do re mi, it's do do sharp. Uh, do we say do sharp? I'll say in letters C C sharp D D sharp E F F sharp G G sharp A B flat as it were, but A sharp B and C. So we have again the seven system again the um, a system of twelve. And the 13 is the beginning of the next octave. So whenever we sing the scale, we say do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. We usually end on the beginning of the next octave. And it's the same with the chakra system. When we have the first 12 chakras, the 13th chakra is uh, the beginning of the next octave. And in the seven chakra system as well, we have the first seven chakras. And it actually continues on a higher no octave um, with the, the repetition of those seven chakras and continues down below. We're going to get into all of that later on because Drumvelo talks about it a lot. But for now, I think that's all the uh, time we have. <laughs> yes, seven sounds as well. We're going to be talking about a lot more of the seven next week. But for now, thank you very much for joining me. Is there a show afterwards? I think I saw someone wasn't going to make it, so I'm not sure. Rondon, let us know in the chat if there's a show. I've been Olev. Thank you ever so much for joining, and I will see you all uh, next week.